everybody. Welcome to another episode of Second Features. Hi, everyone. Uh, yeah, here we are again to talk about Mexican films. I think this is our first Mexican uh, movie. It is indeed. Yeah, probably not our last, but it might, I don't know. It's been an interesting one. The film we're looking at is called Santo and the Treasure of Dracula, or, I mean, it's got so many different titles. Um Sexy Dracula. I keep calling it Sexy Dracula or Sexy Santo. It's um, what is it? Il Vampiro e il Sexo. Yeah, or, that's the that's the title uh, I had. Yeah, the Vampire and the Sex, or the uh, Vampire and the Sex. What a yeah. great title. <laughs> the um, sex. <laughs> yeah, but or just Sex and the Vampire. I don't know. Anyway, um, I think we're like we sense a theme with our, our discussions of films in that the more titles a film has, obviously the better the film is going to mm-hmm. be, right? Absolutely. Yes, yeah. we are. We're back to Sharon's baby again, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So yeah, numerous titles. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. So our guest uh, we'll be talking to shortly is Dr. Dolores Tierney, and she is head of film studies at the University of Sussex and uh, was also one of my early supervisors of my PhD. So that's how I got to know her and that she has written a lot about South American and Central American cinema and um, with a particular fondness, it seems, for the weird end of the spectrum. So she'll fit in very well here. Exactly, exactly. It's her natural home. Um, So for me, this was my first santo movie i've been aware of santo for years probably because i listened to a lot of podcasts on old films and americans particularly who grew up watching this stuff on tv talk about it all the time but i'd never really bothered how about you uh i haven't ever seen a santo film or really i hadn't really any seen a wrestling uh film to Mm. be honest um so yeah definitely my first uh i kind of I mean, it's kind of strange I haven't because it's such a a thing, isn't it? Um, Mm. I mean, Santo, the wrestler, did, what, 52 films or something like that? So many, just over the decades. Um, And it's it's not just Santo. There's a bunch of other masked wrestler films from Mexico as well. I think Blue Demon was another popular one. uh So it was clearly, and I mean, I, I know so little about this and I've not even done that much research but i don't know why it was that mexican wrestlers in particular had this thing about wearing masks and having secret identities it's like they were real life superheroes they would only ever appear in public with their masks on and um and presumably like buried with their masks when they died i don't know it's it's such a common thing for mexican wrestling but i've not seen it particularly anywhere else i mean when I used to watch Big Daddy wrestling and giant haystacks back in the mm. 80s. Well, um, yeah, it's very, like, I read that the that Santo um, never took off his mask, ever, ever. And he, he would, like, when he was traveling with his uh, film crew, he would travel separately so <laughs> that he could take his mask off and nobody would see his face. I wow. don't know if that's true. Uh, but that is kind of yeah, <laughs> that is something that I read. It's kind of weird, but it can't. It be is. Well, it is kind of comic booky. Um, yeah, 
it's uh, and wasn't Santo like in a comic book or create or you know there's something to do with kind of comics as well mm. um in relation to kind of Santo so it is yeah. very like superhero wrestler type thing yeah and it's interesting that that's you know now I suppose we're more used to wrestlers being actors and crossing different across different media but it's quite interesting this is back in the 1950s that they were the wrestlers were establishing themselves as superhero type characters and doing movies from so many different genres the ones that we I mean the one that we're talking about is sort of a horror but not really but based on Dracula and there are other ones where they fight vampires and werewolves and all that sort of stuff and then there are non-horror type ones as well and just sort of crime ones and there's no continuing narrative it's a different it's like a different Santo each time like in this one he's a world-renowned scientist who's invented time travel he's so talented isn't he yeah like he, he can just do anything he wants yeah so it's almost like it sort of resets at the beginning of each santo movie what's santo going to be this time there's no apart from the mask and the fact that he's good at wrestling there's no character continuity i don't think hmm. um so i mean this sex and the vampire the vampire and the sex the yeah. this film the time travel vampire sex film yes. um i kind of I, I kind of read as a comedy more than a horror you know yeah. um but uh yeah. yeah i mean do you, do you want to have a stab at uh, summarizing the plot adrian so yeah why not well the <laughs> i'm glad to <laughs> I was going to ask you, so I'm glad you, yeah, it's good that you got in. I could class. have a go. I could have a go. I and mean, it's, so it's uh, so originally it came out in 1969 as Santo en Anel Tesoro de Dracula, which is Santo in the Treasure of Dracula, and it was a straight horror movie. And from what I've read, I think the Santo films were primarily aimed at a sort of family audience. Like these were popular with children. And so it's a fairly straight story of, in inverted commas, with um, Santo inventing a time machine and he can send women back in time because they're four times stronger than men. <laughs> and so they can handle the process. And I love the time machine is straight out of the, um, that uh, is it Irwin Allen show, the time tunnel. It's a very mm -hmm. similar design to that, which I liked. And so he sends his girlfriend, she volunteers to go back in time. But it's something to do, it's interesting. It's not just a time machine. It projects you, it dematerializes you, and then puts you into a past life on your own timeline or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm not really... The subtitles I watched on the Internet Archive version didn't necessarily translate that well, yeah, but that's the impression yeah. I got. I'm not entirely sure how of the veracity of the science, but yeah, they seem. But also, they don't remember. So she, so his girlfriend, uh, whose name was Louisa, gets sent back to a previous life where she turns out to be one of the characters in this in the novel of Dracula. Basically, I think she's she's basically like Mina Harker or one of those. Um, but she can't remember. It's not like she's gone back in time and then like, oh, I'm time traveling now. She's just there in that story. But Santo and her dad, who I think is also a scientist and they all kind of live in the same house or something, they're all watching her live this past life on the TV. Yeah. So 
I did kind of wonder what the point of the time travel bit was. If he could, if he could invent something that does that, couldn't he have just invented a time machine that looked into the past without having to send his girlfriend back to get ravaged by Dracula? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, when I first, when I watched it, I kind of assumed that they had, in typical sort of uh, B movie fashion or you know off the cuff filmmaking fashion, mm. just strung two films together with a framing device. Yeah. So we had Santo and those actors like look at watching the TV, but the TV is actually like scenes from another yeah, film. It is. Um, it, it feels like a separate movie. That they're yeah. Uh, kind of like that 60s Star Trek episode, uh, The Menagerie, I think it is, when they, they're watching an old e- another episode via like the, <laughs> the kind of screen. Like it's yeah. that kind of setup. But actually, um, it's it's they were actually shot to be one film. So yeah, <laughs> it, it like yeah, it just seems like they're they're two films strung together. Yeah. And it, but the the plot is so weird. So she is becoming uh, I think she is bitten by the vampire and she's being seduced to become a vampire. Her friend has already died and become one of vampire, one of Dracula's um, harem. And um, so Santo and her dad just keep watching this thing and they become a bit obsessed with, well, they've got to rescue her from Dracula before she becomes a vampire. But also he's Dracula's got a ring and a medallion. I think he's got two different things. And he tells her, oh, that's it. He tells her that the clue to where his treasure is buried is basically in this... um, If you put these two things together and translate them, um, and it's in Serbian, I think he said. But anyway, they're in language. It's got to be translated. And that will give people the clue as to where the treasure is. And so, great. So then he brings her back to the present. And then the rest of the story is, can they find Dracula's treasure? Now, that's in the original movie. But at the same time, they decided that they wanted to sell this film overseas to an adult audience. Because, you know, why not? Why not stick a load of topless women into an existing Santo film and sell it as a different movie? Instead of just instead of just making another film that's full of boobs, they've decided to put all the boobs into us into this film. I mean, it makes a kind of pragmatic sense. I suppose like just add a bunch of shots and then yeah. s- make more money by selling selling it abroad. So, so if you watch this, so, but what's weird is it used to be that that there was this rumor about this naked Santo movie, sexy Santo. Uh, was ru- was rumoured for years and it wasn't finally uncovered again in some vault somewhere until I think it was 2010 or 2011. And so before that, the only version you could see was The Treasure of Dracula, which was the standard film. Now it seems to be the other way around. And I have searched everywhere to try and find the original Treasure of Dracula to do a comparison. I can't find a copy of it anyway. The only film you can find is the Sexy Santo version. So that seems to have supplanted the original as the definitive text now i am which, shocked that that has happened yeah i know i'd really like to put them side by side and watch them both on the screen at the same time and, and look at the differences between the versions of the scenes but i don't know maybe one day somebody could do that but so in that version she it's all the same story but when she goes back she's in bed 
and she is having a lovely time with Dracula, who is breast obsessed, and he's basically just seducing her and bringing her uh, paroxysms of pleasure um, before he bites her on the neck, and she's just. But what what I found with that scene was that when it cuts it cuts back later, Santo and her dad are watching this whole thing. Yeah, like, I mean bit awkward the scene itself is creepy because she's asleep and then she's responding to like you know she's having having a nice time but she's asleep so it's essentially sexual assault Mm -hmm. and then we we like cut to her (laughs) own dad and her fiance watching her um be felt up by dracula on a telly uh it is and it's not acknowledged how creepy this is no, they're just kind of watching it, weird. and yeah, it's a li- it's a little bit odd. <laughs> and Santo is just sort of saying, "Well, now we can find Dracula's treasure." He's not thinking. Mm, let's just turn it off for a bit and come back later. It's like no one seems to be particularly embarrassed by that. But so that's where they stick a lot of the nudity in is with her, and then later on, Dracula has this whole harem of women, which in the the normal version have all got their clothes on. And in this version, they've all got their clothes off. Um, and that's basically where the main differences are. Nothing changes in the plot. It's just that in one sit, they shot it once with the clothes on, then they shot exactly the same thing again with the clothes off. I mean, we have we have we have wrestling, we have vampires, we have time travel, mm. we have sex, oh, we yeah. have buried treasure. Um, it's it's just all in the mix, it's isn't it? A whole hodgepodge, but it doesn't really pan out. Um, so yeah, there's a. One of Santo's arch rivals, who we don't know who he is because he's also wearing a mask, he seems to be after he was trying to interfere with this whole thing. Because Santo, he, um, in the olden days, we see Dracula get staked. And then we're back in the new days, and he seems to know exactly where Dracula is buried, and they go and they find him. Um, oh, because she can remember, that's right. She remembers where Dracula is buried. So they go to the tomb, they find him, he's still there with the stake in his chest and they take the medallion that's got the writing on it because they want to find the treasure. Meanwhile, this evil scientist guy, oh, sorry, we don't know he's a scientist yet, whoever he is, the masked stranger, he's also trying to get this thing because he wants to get the treasure. And so there's a bit of fighting between them and so on. Um, but then they agree that because his son is also a wrestler, that what they should do is they should have a fight in the ring between Santo and this guy's son. And whoever wins gets to keep all the stuff and find the treasure, which is basically just the excuse that we need to stick in a good 10-minute wrestling sequence. Yeah. Um, And the wrestling sequence uh, is kind of like... it. I don't, I don't want to use the phrase money shot, but it's kind of like, it feels like, you know, the point, but also audiences, um, like it, it feels like a part of a different film, but it's kind of uh, specifically for audiences who couldn't watch wrestling um, yeah. easily. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that later. I think with Dolores, the fact that wrestling on television had been banned mm. and that was one of the reasons why these films exist in the first place. But and I did read somewhere, it might have been in something Dolores wrote, that the wrestling in the movies wasn't necessarily staged and directed for the movie. They would film actual wrestling matches and put them in. So it's hard to say whether what we're watching in this film is just one of Santo's regular matches and they just filmed it to use in the movie. 
but it's um i don't know maybe it's hard to say i mean it's hard to summarize isn't it yeah like, it's a difficult plot to summarize yeah. <laughs> because there's so much going on but santo wins the fight obviously and gets the thing this is where i get a little bit lost with this story because ultimately the oh yeah the villain because he loses the medallion he thinks i know what i'm going to do instead i'm going to go and pull the stake out of dracula and bring dracula back to life to make him kill santo and so then the whole film becomes another battle with dracula again um and they i'm gonna but they, they kill dracula and that's basically the end of the film like they never actually find the treasure so the <laughs> film is called the treasure of dracula but the treasure gets forgotten quite like about halfway through the movie they just they they kill dracula and that's the end and they still didn't get the treasure and i did wonder what the point of even having the treasure as a macguffin was because they don't even get it yeah like whenever i'm watching a film like this uh, i i just i think of like young kids playing with lego you know <laughs> the way you make stuff up when you're when you're playing as a kid you're like mm-hmm. and then a vampire turns up and then he has yes. a time machine and then he goes to the past and then he fights a wrestler and then there's some mm-hmm. treasure and the wrestler comes and tries to get the treasure but then the vampire does this <laughs> yes. and it kind of like just just progresses like that does that and make then, sense yeah and then, it, <laughs> and then it's bedtime so it's over and it's all done. yeah yeah but yeah no that's yeah that's a good way of putting it it is it's <laughs> It's a weird one. Um, But this is probably now because of the notoriety of the nudity has become probably the most well-known of the Santo movies, even though, like you said, there's tons of them. And um, some of them, there's some quite well-known ones in there, but this is probably now the film that everybody talks about and looks for. And it's been, hell, you know, there've been screenings at film festivals, um, I believe Guillermo del Toro was involved in the restoration. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, yeah. So has yeah. it had a, a special edition release? It's, I I did look and I think there's a Blu-ray coming. I'm not sure if it's out yet, but it's been a bit slow in getting a release. But from what I can tell, it's only being released on Blu-ray with an English dub because it's being released for an American audience. And there's also a box set coming out in America, or perhaps just out this year, of other Santo movies, but they're all dubbed into English. Mm-hmm. And they're new dubs as well. They're not even the dubs from the 60s. They've given them new dubs. Yeah, I'm not sure how I feel about that. A bit weird. Yeah. Um, because they're appealing to Americans, I think. Because that's mm. the... Pro- I mean, outside of Mexico, the main audience for these films is that sort of baby boomer generation who watched this stuff when it was shown on television in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so those would have been dubbed versions then anyway, I suppose. But uh, for film purists and historians, we want to see stuff in its original language and all of that. But I guess they think that the audience for this film is going to be more just wrestling fans than world cinema fans, I suppose. So will you watch any more Santo films, Adrian? I wouldn't say no. I'm quite intrigued by stuff like Vampire and the Werewolf Women and some of those others. I mean, I'm, I suppose I'm actually more interested in Rene Cardona, the director, than I am mm. necessarily in other 
Toronto films. They're, I mean, he is, they're, they're a fascinating family. So there's Rene Cardona, who directed this one, and he has, according to the IMDb, he has 146 directing credits. And that's Jesus. A, a career that lasted about 60 years. But then he had a son, who is Rene Cardona Jr., and he also directed a bunch of movies, including some quite notorious exploitation films like um, Tintorera, which is the kind of Mexican Jaws ripoff. Um, oh, I want to see that. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> there's one called the Bermuda Triangle. But the, um, the Blu-ray company Vinegar Syndrome just recently put out a Rene Cardona Jr. box set um, mm. of some of his films. So he's got cult cachet um with some of his movies he did a film based on the jonestown massacre as well mm-hmm. and um there's one which i've never seen which sounds hilarious called beaks which is a kind of mexican version of the hitchcock's of the birds and uh-huh. i love the fact that it's called beaks so that's <laughs> Rene Rene cardona jr he had a son and you'll never guess what he called him Rene cardona jr jr it's almost Rene Cardona the third, ah. um, who actually he died earlier this year and he was only about sixty. But he was also an actor and a director. He's made a bunch of stuff as well. So they're quite a family, um, and most of the film titles they're in Mexican only, and I don't well in Spanish I should say, uh, all made in Mexico, and I don't understand what most of them are called. So I imagine that a lot of these films probably didn't travel outside. So there's mm-hmm. just the occasional ones that have got the cult cachet like Tintorera um, from Rene Cardona Jr. That, that are known outside of Mexico. And then obviously some of these Santo films. Rene Cardona also did a, a Mexican um, Christmas movie called Santa Claus, which I have heard people talk about before on podcasts. And I think there might have even been a uh, mystery theater episode on that and it's a kind of weird mexican santa claus movie from so there's there's a lot of interesting stuff that came out (laughs) from those guys and they seem the cardona dynasty as i suppose we should call them seem to have specialized primarily in the genre end like exploitation end Mm -hmm. um so i'm definitely up for exploring their work a bit more yeah Um, but santo maybe i don't know what about you do um we'll see what i can get a hold of i don't love the idea of watching like a modern dub of these older films but yeah um i think i might i might it's kind of an interest it would be a really interesting one to look into with a view to like maybe teaching it um on a like history module because i like to kind of incorporate exploitation stuff because they explain so much about you know the film business in Mm. any given era um actually i've learned i've learned so much more from about how the film industry works from just studying exploitation and kind of low budget genre film yeah Yeah. so yeah maybe yeah it's a shame as well as we said they had a really good um run in the 60s in america but in the UK, I don't think Santo Films ever made it over here in any kind of formal distribution at all. Mm. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why we don't have them as part of our sort of nostalgia or there's not so much of a fandom. When I was growing up, the films that were on TV all the time were the Hammer films. Yeah. And so I grew up with a love of Hammer, and that's where my kind of, probably where my exploitation leanings come from is is growing up watching Hammer movies. Um 
where you know I didn't see this kind of stuff it was just never on and yeah so I mean it feels like like maybe it would be a late night channel four thing in yeah. the late 80s yeah, well, yeah probably <laughs> maybe that's my, that's my bedtime but yeah. yeah um so it's sort of a it's a shame when whole film movements like this just are you know don't travel to certain areas but do to others so it feels like we've we missed out perhaps mm. if if people in the 60s had enjoyed the enjoyed santo films maybe we'd have a whole santo thing over here just like there is in america and masked wrestling would be a bigger deal um but it isn't i know there are some people who are masked wrestling fans and i know there was um just a couple of years ago there was a live luchador event in london with mexican wrestling and quite famous masked wrestlers appearing in london and stuff so it does there is a bit of a cult around it i suppose but it's relatively niche I'd like to welcome to the podcast now Dr. Dolores Tierney, who is Head of Film Studies at the University of Sussex. And I should declare here that Dolores was also one of the supervisors in the early days of my PhD and uh, gave me lots of encouragement, which was much needed. Oh, that's Um, nice. Yeah, absolutely. But then Dolores disappeared off to America and... uh, (laughs) But now she's back and she's head of film studies, head of film, head of film studies. Um, this is very messy. I'll probably edit around this. But anyway, we're very grateful to to have you on the podcast. And so you, when I spoke to you about what you'd like to do, you suggested that we talk about the film El Vampiro y el Sexo, otherwise known as uh, sex, The Vampire and Sex or Santo and Dracula's Treasure or Santo en el Tesoro de Dracula, from 1968. And so my first question, I suppose, is why this particular film has uh, sparked your interest and and why you've written so extensively on Sexy Santo. Okay, so um, I think what first piqued my interest is in about 2011, the Guadalajara Film Festival was going to show this long-rumoured, sexy version of a Santo film, right? Um, And it had been restored thanks to UCLA and some money from Guillermo del Toro, who's very much kind of about looking after that history of fantastical and horror cinema in Mexico because it's a tradition he sees himself coming out of. Um, And then, you know, like, quite, like, sensationally, one of, El Santo, this very important Mexican wrestler's son, stops the screening or protests and says, you know, this isn't a real film. My father's not in this film. This is a spliced version of some sexy bits. And so it becomes this kind of great cause celebre, and I was kind of interested in it. And and then I managed to get hold of a copy, 
you know, and actually now it's circulating more broadly on the internet, but it was quite hard to get hold of. And I'm always about those kind of aspects of film history that we want to explore and think a bit more about. I'm also interested in exploitation cinema. So I decided to kind of look at it, both the, both the aspect of its original production and then its subsequent kind of re-emergence in 2011 in a restored version and think about the cultural politics behind those two different moments. Yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned in one of the articles um, that um, Mexico's, we, I mean, I know very little, I'll say this right now, I know very little about this area and about Mexican wrestling and luchadors and, and all of that stuff. And so I didn't realise until I read your article that it had actually been banned on television in the, I think it was the late 1950s. And so that's one of the, re- is that one of the reasons why there were so many Mexican wrestler films? because it couldn't be seen on television. Yeah, precisely. So Mexican wrestling becomes a really important and significant working class sport in Mexico, very much a spectator sport. And in the 50s, it begins to be shown on television. Um, And then the Mexican government um, bans it uh, purportedly because of its bad influence on children. You know, but there's various other reasons why we could think about it, why it might have been banned, because it's a way of the working class getting together and seeing some kind of spectacle, because uh, it's kind of pointing... They were very much a totalitarian government in the 1950s who were very much trying to control um, expressions of working class culture. So there's broader reasons for it, and that was one reason why it was banned. But what happened was it went into television, and although they might use that footage that had been originally shot for television in these movies, the baddies were no longer recognisable Mexican people. They were um, the wolfman or a vampire or whoever, you know. So you've got bits of wrestling mm. in the actual arenas in Mexico, but a lot of the fighting went on with these kind of supernatural baddies, but all following the kind of rules of Mexican wrestling. So it's quite funny how the wrestling goes on all over the place, both in these kind of horror plots um, and also mm. kind of bits of found found footage from TV that kind of make their way into the films. And potentially that's why they became so popular because audiences could only see it at the cinema unless they could make it to the arena to watch it. The different arenas in Mexico City and some of the urban centres. Yeah. So why wasn't it why weren't the films also banned if they were worried about uh, the influence right. that they had on children? Uh, I think, I think, and I was kind of rereading that article again this morning going, oh, that's interesting, because I was trying to remember <laughs> stuff, because I co-authored that as well with Andrew Sider. And this is, this was written in 2002, like almost 20 years ago. Um, but uh, we kind of speculated that the translation of these fights into the supernatural meant that they were lifted out of the realm of the social, which was what the Mexican government was finding threatening um, because the wrestling matches as indeed mm. contemporary wrestling matches were very much fixed in the 50s and were just some kind of spectacle of one guy fighting against the other and it was all kind of a little bit fixed and uh, and there was a kind of a sense that people watching these films had a sense of this fixedness of the way things were and in some ways these wrestling matches were kind of a critique of uh, this kind of fixed system of governing. But once you translated it into films where the goodies and the baddies were, wrestlers versus, you know, as I said, wolfmen or vampires or uh, other things, there was kind of that 
uh, abstraction from the social sphere, so there wasn't the feeling of it wasn't perceived as such a threat. They didn't seem to locate mm-hmm. it because often also the threat wasn't just um, El Hombre Lobo. It was often a threat from the foreign. So a lot of these people that they thought were sort of seen as not Mexican. So it kind of became a more nationalist spectacle and something that was being um, celebrated. Does that make sense? Yeah, because yeah. like so, Dracula in this film, he, Dracula is Eastern European, mm, I suppose. Yeah. So it becomes, and yeah. uh, but El Santo is always a Mexican national working class hero. You know, no matter who he becomes in all his various different films, even yeah. when he's kind of a James Bond figure, he's still insistently proletarian and a wrestler with a day job. You know, he still continues yeah. to do a lot of that. Well, like you, Adrian, I didn't really, I don't really know much about this genre before. I mean, this is this was my first Santo film, um, oh, and I just good. find it so fascinating. Um, and I, I really kind of loved reading your article, Dolores, because it, it the cultural and social and political context, when you kind of, the sex film is is often ignored, but can be so interesting for what it reveals about those structures. Um, and I'm not kind of familiar with Mexican film in the 60s, but I am familiar with the idea of genre films, which are kind of cultural, um, very important culturally to a working class audience but then sort of derided by critics. Um, I'm kind of interested in studying what those kinds of films reveal. Uh, and I think that's what, yeah, this genre, you can kind of do that so beautifully. Um, and I really I, I really kind of enjoyed it. But is it the case that uh, the, I mean, it's the, the sexy bits. Uh, they were, uh, were they just just for kind of export, just for international audiences? Um, they were for a little while in the late. In, so yes. So what happens? Um, so I wrote one article in the uh, about twenty years ago, or fifteen twenty years ago, that was about these kind of initial films from the fifties, and then, uh, or I co-wrote it with Andrew Sider, and then we looked at subsequent kind of emergence in US TV, and then the kind of take up in the psychotronic era. This other article, Santo. Uh, about uh, El Vampiro y el Sex, or the vampire and the sex, the kind of sexy version, um, is a late, it's a 68 movie. And there was an original kind of straight version, uh, which is uh, Santo contra, Santo en el tesoro de Dracula, Santo and Dracula's treasure, which is a kind of a straight Santo movie where he is a scientist, of course, as well as a wrestler, and he's found a way to go back in time and he sends his girlfriend back to the 19th century where she meets Dracula. Okay. He was on a Mexican hacienda. And then the sexy version. Yes, you know, um, at the time in the late 60s in New York, plenty of a, a market for much more, much sexier films. There's kind of an explosion of sex playing everywhere that um, Eric Schaefer and um, Linda Williams talk about in Sex Scene. And so, yes, there's a kind of a jumping on the bandwagon of the sexual revolution in inverted commas, uh, to make the same film with just some inserted sexier, sexploitation-like moments. Um, mm. But several years later, when there's a kind of a liberalisation in Mexican film, Santo does begin to make sexier films, only appearing with a few topless women. So it's not as if it couldn't possibly happen in Mexico, 68, but it, it couldn't have happened in 68 Mexico. It happened a few years later. So, um, yes, these were made for export to the United States, um, only, um, maybe to Italy, but not to the rest of Latin America, where there were similarly authoritarian states, and not to, 
to Spain mm. either, where Franco sens- uh, mm. uh, censorship would have allowed it either. Um, as as yeah. as far as I've been able to tell at this point, did that answer okay. your question? Yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, I mean, when I was watching the film, I hadn't really can, kind of contextualized it. I just watched it, um, and I was uh, I thought it was two films that had been made at different times cut together and then reading your article i was amazed to find that actually uh they were kind of films they were kind of shot simultaneously trying to tease that out and trying to figure it out (laughs) so uh so the big thing the big coup was that santo's son el hijo del santo said in the 2011 garden had a film festival my father was never in this film you know this is a different movie shot uh, or cut spliced in which would be an exploitation kind of uh, mode of production. However, if you watch the original Santo Contra, Santo and the and Dracula's Treasure, um, the matching between the scenes is incredibly precise. You know, it's almost it's so incredible. And I think I say this in the article, given the very low production values. So matches on the eyeline matches and matches on action are all taking place only in the sexier version that circulates in not just New York, but the whole of the Spanish language circuit in the United States and some of the exploitation circuit too. Um, Mm. You get, you know, topless scenes and a little bit of exploitation activity. So yeah, it's, it it is the same film matches and everything. I think you talked about in your article that this wasn't the only film that was shooting hot versions. Mm. This was a a common practice in Mexican exploitation cinema at that time, is that right? Or have I... Yeah, it became, I mean, this, yeah. in 1968, there's three other films that have these other alternate versions. Um, mm. El Oripilante Bestia Humana, which is just called Sex and the Beast, or The Hor- Horrifying Human Beast is one of them. Um, Blue Demon nice. and The Invaders and Female Wrestlers versus The Robot Murderer. So these were three others that were the sexy versions. <laughs> These are these titles are so great. <laughs> yeah, such good titles. There's there's one other film that I'm I'm aware of that because um, Boris Karloff did four films that were partly shot in Mexico in the same Ooh. around the same time. There's one I've seen called Fear Chamber, which I know had um, alternate topless sequences, but not not with Boris Karloff in them because he was in bed somewhere in America probably, but. Um, it, when it cuts to the stuff in Mexico, there's some alternate sequences. So, oh, good. I and I have to look for that because I know Boris Karloff did do. Um... Yeah, he did four films, um, and I, he literally. I mean, this is a conversation for another podcast, perhaps. But he could do that film. But at one point, he is he's basically doing the whole performance lying in bed, occasionally talking on the phone, and all <laughs> the action is happening in Mexico. <laughs> Bless it's him. like so, yeah, and also Lon Chaney Jr. John Carradine. I mean, a lot of those current horror veterans end up. So the Mexican films borrow a lot of the kind of universal horror ideas from the 30s. They remake them throughout mm. the 50s and 60s. Um, these then get imported back to the US and dubbed into English quite separately to this film I'm talking about. And then the Mexican kind of movie, uh, some of the kind of uh, low budget filmmakers or the. You know, these are industry filmmakers as well, though. So what's quite different is this is not a separate industry in the in Mexico. It's all part of the same group. They then employ some of mm. these U.S. 
horror veterans back into Mexico and it happens quite back and forth. There's a lot of backing and forthing going on in the 60s, actually, between Mexico and the US. You mentioned earlier about distribution overseas. You mentioned Italy as a place where some of these would go. So because I know I've seen I've seen one Italian Fumetti film called Superargo versus Diabolicus. And Superargo is is a masked wrestler who is also a superhero. And there are sequences where he's in the ring doing fights as well as going off to fight supervillains. Um, so it seems like there was a sort of influence of the Mexican wrestler Ooh. Santo type movie picked up on in Italy as well. Well, I'm not, I'm not surprised actually. At one point in the United States, not these films, but in the early 60s, Santa was called Samson in some of the US recut oh. versions of his films. And these weren't done by the Mexican directors. This were kind of bought wholesale and shown late night on TV or in or in drive-ins. And they kind of started getting mixed up with the sword and sandals, which is that earlier article that I wrote mm. with uh, co-wrote with Andrew Sider in uh, 2005. So there is kind of lots of crossover. Oh yeah, it was um, Kay Gordon. Yeah, and, and I, I don't have, I haven't done any research on the reception in uh, Italy, but I've just seen title cards and lobby cards that indicate these films circulated in Italy. Right. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, it is quite interesting. I hadn't heard about that movie. I can, I'll send it you later. Yeah, I'm writing it all down. <laughs> Dolores, I wanted to ask you more about 1968 in Mexico. You make a point in your article of talking about how important 1968 was politically in Mexico and that when this film started shooting right around the time of quite a significant event in um, in Mexican sort of political history. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about the connection there. Yeah, 1968 Mexico. Um, I mean, I talked about it a little bit in relation to the United States, in relation to a kind of counterculture um and a moment in which sex on screen became a representation of countercultural values, um, and sex itself and liberated sex was supposedly a kind of the countercultures thing. And Mexico itself has its own and quite separate kind of counterculture emerging that's connected um, to. Uh, student-based, specifically student-based reactions against an increasingly authoritarian government that is invading university campuses and crushing any student right to protest. And so this is kind of building up in the summer of 68 before Santo, uh, uh, contra, uh, Santo against versus the, and in, sorry, Santo in... Uh, <laughs> Uh, what's it called Dracula's treasure sorry it's made which is made about October um lots of things are happening and then this protest culminates in uh, this this kind of summer of violence which we do actually see if you've seen Roma recently the violence that we see being inflicted on mm-hmm. on um students protesting is another smaller scale but still significant massacre that happens in 1971 the summer of 1971 but this uh particular massacre I'm going to talk about happens on the 2nd of October uh, 1968 where students are protesting um, in Tlatelolco, a part of Mexico City um, and hundreds and hundreds of students and people are 
killed. And it's this huge kind of trauma that's very much repressed and not talked about. Um, and it's it's coincident with the shooting of um, Santo and this movie that we're talking about. So it's kind of, I and I was kind of interested in whether there was any kind of connection between sex and authoritarian cultures in this film, or whether it is purely something we can only trace to the export market, um, and whether mm. um, we could think more significantly about Mexico's counterculture in relation to cinema, because it has been thought about in relation to cinema, but only in relation to art films and films that are kind of verite reflections of that cinema protest and the people making these films are not young people and they are not people who are students these are older conservative white in a Mexican context kind of men who are making films and yet it is interesting that sex happens to be something that's great and fine and celebrated Um, and there is no kind of none of the authoritarianism of the social milieu is making its way into the film so I kind of was kind of quite interested in thinking about those moments alongside each other. Uh, yeah, I find it kind of interesting, like the character of Luisa um, as Santa's fiance and how she kind of experiences sexual pleasure, but also the reaction from uh, Santo to this. <laughs> it's kind of, it's not, yeah, you're in, in the article, I think you say this is not kind of punished. Um, and we get to kind of linger on Luisa's pleasure, you know? Um, and yeah, that's quite interesting. Um, I was also going to ask you, uh, you know, because uh, this might sound like a kind of daft question, but I don't really know much about Mexican cinema in the 60s and kind of for general listeners as well. Like, why wouldn't you see sex scenes in cinema like this um, for a domestic audience uh, in the 60s? Like, why would you not see um, ex- more explicit kind of sexual references? Why would it kind of be for export, basically? Right. So other movies made at the time did have kind of references without being explicit to people doing the wrong thing, having sex outside marriage, etc. And a kind of a Catholic patriarchal totalitarian government that sees itself as the father of the country um, implies that you cannot uh, show this kind of thing. So uh, although there isn't censorship, there's kind of self-censorship on the part of the filmmakers to not make these kinds of Mm. films or anything that might be too sexy so there's a point at which Uh in the late 60s that's still very much how it's going it's not the kind of censorship that you would get in Argentina at the time where as I'm sure Adrian does know Sarli's films which were very sexually explicit and weren't made with alternate versions but were just made with that version were cut to the point of kind of incomprehensibility um, you know, so it wasn't it wasn't that kind. It wasn't post production censorship. It was kind of pre production kind of censorship. Um, mm. So, uh, and and it's that kind of mentality that kind of led uh, Santo San to say, "My father never made these films. They couldn't possibly have existed." Mm. Um, and in '68, Santo himself still not really getting involved in anything that's going on. A few years later, he is being mm. doing a few more things and being actually shot in two shots with nudish women and in bed with nudish women mm. so it's slightly more more risque but at this point it wasn't yet allowed the liberalization that happens a few years later is not because the government is any less conservative or patriarchal but it's kind of a um an airbrushing of we are a liberal government we're having the olympics mm. 1970 
we are, oh no, we, ha we had the Olympics in 1968, we're having the World Cup, we are a liberal and open government, Let's and they liberalised kind of what was allowed, but in 68 still was not yet allowed. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of... Um... Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, I think it's also interesting that, um, that the actress that plays Louisa, she is from Argentina, and the actor playing Count Dracula is Italian. Yes, so. So you you could look at it as though that the Mexicans are still very much clean and you know not getting involved, and the really sort of perverted character who's Aldamonte, yeah, the the Dra Dracula who is breast obsessed, um, he's he's European, so you know he's like one those of those Europeans, and that's completely <laughs> commensurate with the villains not always the the kind of other. Or they're either sometimes mm. they might be Mexican, other from a previous era, but they might also be European or Argentine. And just to tell you a bit more about Mexican cinema, twenty years previously in the forties, they had these kind of quite sexy cabaret melodramas, which were a bit like women's films. Only the women were often token dancers who were coded as prostitutes, but we didn't really see anything apart from mm. that they wore high heels and danced with men. Um, and those films had Cuban women playing the sex worker. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that's kind of a nice kind of connection, actually. And I hadn't really, uh, I hadn't really, but Aldo Monte, yeah. And, and, and Noelia, what's her name? I can't remember. I was trying to remember her name. Uh, Noelia, Noelia Noel. Noel. I'm sure that's not her real name, but anyway. <laughs> yes. No. I mean, so Laura, that's sort of similar, isn't it? With British cinema in the 60s, often if they needed women, especially if it was women, who would be nude or would be more sexualized characters they'd often bring them in from europe rather than have, yeah. have cast british actresses that was quite common wasn't it yeah yeah so in 63 there was the film that kind of girl which i know you're familiar with adrian mm -hmm. um which was kind of one of the first british films to tackle venereal disease and it stars a woman mm -hmm. who is from continental europe because of course yeah. so it was a different sort of thing if you had a british actress playing a character who was sexually promiscuous it was seen by you know by the censorship board and in general as as more more kind of controversial um and adrian you've done loads of work on continental imports during this era in the mm -hmm. 60s as well so there was stuff coming in from europe which was given a freer pass i think than than yeah. kind of british produced uh films mm. um so they're kind of treated differently i think yeah there's a sense that british women are not like that yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's essentially it. Yeah. <laughs> or if they're like that, even narratively in a kind of loving or any of the British uh, new wave films, there's a kind of a punishment for it afterwards, isn't there? Mm. You know, if you do, mm. if you yeah. could, even if you might not get it away explicitly or there's some kind of, you know, moral kind of code where it cannot be pleasurable or happy at the very end. I was just thinking that I chose to teach a, um, a kind of loving um for my British social wave, that new wave that I'm going to teach next next year on British cinema. I'm just giving a guest mm. lecture on it, and I was just kind of thinking about about because I rewatched it recently, thinking, oh wow, yeah, you know. But I think the act, yeah, I think there's that point of which you can't have sex and not it not be um, unproblematic in the British context. So it's similar, there's a lot of similarities mm. actually. So I end up um, a lot of the cultural theorists. Um, that write about Mexico post-1940 are very much using kind of Richard Hogarth-like ideas to talk about this kind of authentic mm -hmm. working class culture. Um, so when when I first like wrote about this classical cinema for my 
my doctoral thesis, which became my first book, which is all separate work to this exploitation stuff, which was kind of my 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 outlet. Um, I ended up kind of rethinking about a lot of those particular moments. And wrestling became a bit like going to the pub. There was that kind of idea of authentic working class culture and how it was threatened by other elements or preserved in various ways. And that mass culture, the cinema, wasn't necessarily a threat to it either. You know, even if even if the powers that be, the kind of authoritarian governments that, you know, lasted in Mexico right up until 2000, could emphasize that mass culture was in some way determining or breaking up um, authenticity in Mexican working class culture. So, yeah, it's kind of, that, the moral codes are really similar and I hadn't thought about that until you just said it now. Yeah, and you kind of find um, across across um, various countries, like Italy and Britain, share a kind of, like, you know, the carry-on films, um, a, a kind of working class humour and bawdiness that that arises from particular strains of working class uh, forms of theatre and comedy. And of course, throughout the 60s in British cinema, the carry-on films every single year topped the box office, were so incredibly popular domestically and so totally kind of, you know, derided by the critics. But it's it shows a definite split between celebrations of working class forms of culture and history and the sort of more consecrated uh, stuff which was coming out Ooh. of British cinema in that era. Yeah, and I think you find parallels in different countries of that similar kind of, yeah, working class yeah. culture. Uh, yeah. Well, essentially all the kind of up and coming new cinema directors of Mexico from the 60s who made great films, Felipe Casals, who's just died recently, who made Canoa and various other films, like a big hero of Alfonso Cuaron, they were very, very down on this kind of sexy cinema. So there wasn't just the explicit sexy films uh, that were exported. There were sexy films that were more like um, the carry-on films, where they promised a lot and didn't really show you very much. Um, yeah. Called The Bed and other things. Um, and they were all shown and were really popular and were made much, much more. They were the the the... And they were the kind of predominant mode or the predominant amount of films that were being made and seen. Um, and yet the, the people who went on to be the critics and the historians of Mexican film through the 70s, 80s and 90s were very much new cinema directors who had rejected, who weren't making these popular films. Um, and therefore they wrote the history to reject the, them and to talk about their own films or the films of their friends. It's all very, very dodgy, really. Um, and the great thing about Alfonso Cuaron as a contemporary director is that he loves the new cinema directors like Felipe Casals and others. And yet he also liked all the sexy films uh, that had lots of bawdy humour in. And because and Alfonso Cuaron's a big genre director, you know, who loves popular cinema. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's quite, it's quite nice to see in interviews you know, Alfonso Cuaron not letting Casals, Felipe Casals, this big art cinema director, who's amazing, by the way, you know, he's not letting him be like down on the popular working class cinema. He's like, that cinema is just as important as to who we are. Um, and that's why I like Roma, because Roma emphasises bawdy humour, emphasises what people were watching and enjoying, even though it's an art film. Does that make sense? It's kind of, mm-hmm. it references this yeah, whole yeah, yeah, history, yeah. this whole kind of period Um uh, it, it comes 70, 71, a couple of years after the period that I'm writing about, but it's all there. So were the, um, I'm, I'm assuming the Santo films were not critically respected at the time in Mexico. No. 
just not even the sexy ones, just Santo in general, were they were they generally dismissed by contemporary critics? Yeah, I mean, and, and there's a point at which I totally understand why a um, um, they were rejected in as much as uh, a nation that's talking about its kind of cultural artifacts want to emphasise that which it sees being emphasised in other parts of the world, you know. So in, in some ways, you know, the same way in which Western culture emphasised art cinema modes Mexican cinema did the same or across Latin America the people who are writing that history are maybe trained in film schools in Europe or and and are still writing about that cinema and it was really only in the US the kind of cue from a lot of the exploitation and paracinema studies started to happen in the 90s and early 2000s that younger scholars in the US in in Mexico but again mostly journalism based writers began to think about the cinema again but as as you know as recently as 2012 or 13 the director of the National Cinematheque was kind of saying we won't have an homage to Santo for his one 100 years of his birth but younger people at the Cinematheque were saying we will and they did you know, so it's a generational thing, which is not completely distinct to what's happened in Britain, potentially with a bit more of a lag, which is very understandable due to, you know, slight differences in the way film industries develop. They develop at different periods and different generations as well. Well, I th- I'm, I've run out of questions. Okay. I mean, Laura, was there anything else you wanted to? Um, I wanted to really just... Um chat lots about santo and the vampire and how much i and how you know the, the bits i found really funny go tell me what bits you found funny go on. uh well i i loved the um i loved how talented santo is uh he's a scientist and also he just commands every room he walks into and he just like we first see him and he walks in and goes yeah i've done all of my own research and invented a time machine obviously (laughs) it's just like accepted like of course you have (laughs) um he's just like a renaissance man um i loved his uh i loved kind of luisa i just kind of really liked that character um i liked the bat on a string i find that very immensely entertaining um and uh yeah, I like the sort of, um, they're watching the film on television. So it's kind of like a film within a film. The fact that it, it was kind of shot simultaneously and not not two separate films, I think is really interesting. And I'd like to go back and actually see that, to see those kind of eyeline matches and yeah. see actually how that worked. Um, because, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, and I think I'm going to watch more Santa films because I was thoroughly entertained. And I love this podcast for exposing me to all these great bits of international culture that I I would never otherwise come across you know so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I, I i did have a look and it looks like santo films never made it to the uk back in the 60s and 70s oh, really? it doesn't look like it. i mean i can't find any evidence of there's no bbfc certification that i can find or monthly film bulletin reviews not just of this film but just of any santo movies they seem to have had a very poor distribution and even now you can't buy them that easily on DVD in the UK or anything like that. In America, there's more of a interest because obviously they were shown on television such a lot as you've as you've mentioned. But uh, I think generally speaking, in the UK, we're completely unaware of unless you're into sort of psychotronic film. You, Santo has no resonance for anybody, which is a shame. It is a shame, but um, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Um, uh, 
so it didn't make they didn't make it to the UK and I I think I might have first seen my first Santo before I even went to I didn't see it at the National Film Theatre in London where I saw a lot of the classical Mexican films they ended up writing my PhD on I think I saw my first Santo film on Mystery Science Theatre 3000 which was a psychotronic TV show in the <laughs> US when I went there to do a PhD mm-hmm. so that kind of does show you um where the sites are and where people get to see them um, but I also watched a whole bunch of movies in in the in the Filmoteca, so in the National University's kind of film library in Mexico City. So those films were preserved there in the late nineties, early two thousands. So I would I did actually watch a lot of them, and then go watch wrestling that night at the uh, the one of the hmm. big arenas in Mexico City to kind of. contrast and compare I was doing my book research at the time which Mm -hmm. wasn't this this was my thing that I did when I was not focusing on my book research and I I watched a lot of wrestling so yeah um I think I think the access to a lot of films is still kind of uh difficult and I wouldn't imagine a lot of people are teaching I do know some people who teach Santo actually Ian Smith I know even Ian Robert Smith Mm. he he teaches Santo on his courses you know so he's kind of unusual in that respect Definitely. It was, it's, yeah. Mm, I would if I could. I can, so I might, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I can teach it, so I might do. We do a world cinema module in the first oh. year, so. Um, you know what? Yeah, know. isn't it? How great, how great, though, to be like, I'm going to introduce you to something culturally different. I'm going to show you a Santa film. I'm not going to show you uh, La Ventura, or I'm not going to show you a Buddha Souffle. I'm going to show you a Santa film. You know, and you can even That's start with that. Yeah. Some of the you didn't want to, if you didn't want to go with the sexy one because these are first years and you didn't want to scare them. You could show them. You can add it, <laughs> but you could show them. Um, you know, Santo versus the vampire women, which they might get more because it has such a universal horror kind of aesthetic. You know, they mm. might be able to get more into into that because they'll have a code for reading it by because it has. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty. It's a really good atmospheric one, and the production values are pretty good on it. So that's okay, and Santo good. in the Wax Museum. Um, Santo versus the Vampire Women and Santo in the Wax Museum are two of my favourite for production values. The early sixties. Cool. Um, yeah, that's essentially how I teach. It's off the beaten track. It's not a Buddha Souffle. Oh, how amazing! <laughs> you know what? Though I'm I have feeling other... like I'm just feeling like I don't get to teach what I want to all the time because we end up on our modules, don't we, Adrian? And we just can't. We can't really break out of ourselves sometimes. <laughs> We all end up like that, don't we? Well, thank you very much, Dolores, thank for coming you. on to talk. It's really fascinating to to learn more about this world that we know so little about. Oh well, thank you. And and yeah. talking to you both today's made me think differently about the work and some of the other areas. So you know, some of the connection to British social realism I hadn't really thought about, and and sex and the way it's portrayed um, in connection to Britain. So that's quite useful. Thank you. So that's 
that's all for today. Thanks everyone for listening and thank you to our guests, uh, all the interesting chat and all the things we learned about uh, El Santo and Mexican wrestling films. Uh, uh, if you want to kind of um, give us suggestions for future episodes or just comment on the podcast, uh, you can find us on Twitter. It's at Second Features. Um, and uh, you can also email us. I cannot remember the email address right now. <laughs> yeah, secondfeaturespod at gmail.com, I think. But I, I always put it in the show notes if you want to. Excellent. Out. Yes, and there will be show notes um, and things that you can read and kind of learn about, uh, you mm. know, um, in the sort of metadata for this podcast episode. Uh, so do have a look. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll uh, see you all next time. Yeah, for a Christmas episode. Maybe. Mm, maybe. <laughs> Let's see what happens. Yeah. Okay, bye everybody. Thank you. Bye.